Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether you've directed your digits to download this digital content, copied us to cassette to keep in your Walkman, or pressed us into wax to play on your gramophone while you pop some Charleston. This is the Beyondering Podcast, exploring faith out of bounds. Great to have you along for the journey. We are here at episode three, which this week is titled Many Ways Beyond My Idea of God. Loved having you around on Facebook. If you're up for the conversation and want to engage, jump on board our Facebook page. If you're with us in episode one, you might remember that we promised you would come up against ideas you might find challenging or might disagree with. We certainly did, but our choice for this podcast is to lean into the discomfort, not avoid it. Well, so this episode might be that for you, or alternatively, you might find some of the ideas put forward set you free. So God, rid me of God. God, rid me of God, of the smallness of that which I comprehend, of the arrogance to believe that I see clearly, that these answers could be just another notch on the belt of my own insecurity. They may help to hold up my pants, but they'll never let me run free. So liberate me from the idolatry of abstraction, that I would be radically undone. You are unknown even as I know you. You're at one and the same, as close as my skin, and yet as far away as the moon on some other planet on some other day, and yet I still feel your breath upon my cheek. See you now, but I can't see you. I know you, but I don't know you. Your transcendent imminence, where distance and closeness are two sides of the same coin. So, would you let me keep the coin in the pocket in my chest? And sometimes I take it out and flick it in the air, but it never lands to show me where you are, whether near or far. So, God, rid me of God. God, rid me of God the names that I write on your forehead, for they're not the reality, the totality of you. They would better be placed upon my own, for that is what they are. I can see you now, but only through glasses, thick with lenses, embedded with colours, painted from the years of my own understanding. The world around me becomes what I perceive it to be. I do not see you as you are, I see you as I may be. I am in bondage to these things that I think that I know. My Idols are my understanding set in stone, so stay liquid, God. Even as I try to freeze you into my moulds, especially the one that looks just like me, your water in me, all around me, may I be a sponge on the bottom of the ocean, lost in the expanse of you. The mystery of God is looking into the sun to be undone by the absolute excess of light. So that even as I see you, my eyes are blinded by you and this light is undefinable yet undeniable and I am left to delve into the knowing of the unknowing where the light is so bright 
the mystery is found in the fact that I cannot look lest I go blind. So leave it all behind. Leave behind the machinations of the intellect. Leave behind the senses and all things sensible. Beyond reason, beyond rationality, the whoness of God dwells in inaccessibility. Leave it all behind that thou mayst arise by unknowing towards the divine until we find the places where the paths of our stories fall back upon each other. And here in the webs of the weavings of each other's truth, the waves of the wind may pound against us, but they'll never break us. So, God, rid me of God. week we're exploring the question of whether or not there is only one way to God. Many religions agree with each other that there is only one way, but then they go and ruin the harmony by suggesting that it's only their way. But if religion is simply our best human attempts to put our limited and finite language around the infinite and sacred and the divine, if religion is simply our best human attempt to describe and express our spiritual experiences then we have to consider whether perhaps we're all climbing the same mountain. Is it all just different toppings on the same pizza? Different words to the same tune? Different palettes to paint the same landscape? Or is it just the same shit in a different bucket? Last week, to aid us in our interviewing, we heard from Beryl. I don't mind the nudity. Mm. Well, this week we have another voice to throw into the mix. You see, Beyondering attempts to grapple with questions and concepts, which of course means there's a risk of being, I don't know, a little bit too theoretical or inaccessible. So, to help us keep our ideas on the ground, we have a child, like Faith. I'm Faith, and I'm five. Any pigs like peace? The Bible was really heavy. If only the world was made of love. I feel sad for children. I once saw a Christmas tree being put to death. I say my prayers in my eyes. Opera. I don't think there should be rich churches when there are poor people. I saw a book once with drawings in it about falling in love. I think you have to have eggs. Everybody loves baby Jesus. 
Cause they bought prisons. <laughs> Why are we so sure that God is only in our experience of faith? And how do we work to have effective interfaith dialogue? To help us come at this huge topic, we've enlisted the help of not one, but two of the brightest and best in the country, Dave Andrews and Val Webb. They bring really complimentary insight to this conversation. Dave is a community worker, he's lived in India and Afghanistan, so he comes with this really hands-on, sleeves-rolled-up kind of energy to the conversation. And Vel is a trained scientist and she's turned her analytical mind to studying how faith and religion works. Val Webb was initially a microbiologist, but jumped over to theology, exchanging the study of one form of critter for another. She has a PhD and is author of 12 books, but something we really appreciate is that she's wonderfully reflective and honest, and in this podcast she brings to the table some of the really thorough scholarship that she's done of other faiths and religious traditions. She's been a theology lecturer at five theological colleges, She's a mother, she's a grandmother, she's an Australian, and now Beyondering Podcast alumni. Val Webb, welcome to Beyondering. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Val, a lot of your work, particularly in the last couple of books you've produced, is has a particular focus on other religions. In terms of your own grappling with God and how God might relate to faiths outside of your own, can you talk about that journey? Well, I think, I think most religions, when it boils down to it, religions are about something that has developed from a particular founder. And I think if you do the history of religions and look at how things have come about, you'll find most of them have come from a founder who in that particular circumstance decide to step out and commit to changing the world. And so I guess most of my writing comes from the point of the human being. What is wrong with the world? How do we live well? And how we can solve our problems? And that to me seems to be where most of the founders of religions have started. So you've said in, in that response that religions are a uh, they begin in a context, and, and each of the, the, the leaders or founders of those religions was speaking from a particular context. Does that mean that, in a way, religions are seasonal? Evolving? Yeah. Maybe? Yep. Um, because I think the context changed. I think that's the problem with religions. If we can't see that, if we can't understand how closely uh, the doctrines or the teachings of a certain time fit in with that time. So I guess the next natural question is that are religions, and in our case, I guess speaking particularly to the Christian religion, are they capable of that evolution, or do they in fact need to come to the end of their season and be rebirthed in, in something new? Major religions today have been going for a long time, and so they have been evolving. I mean, you look at Islam for one. You know, what happened in the, at the beginning of Islam with the, the Prophet Muhammad? You have to understand that in his day, things were in a pretty bad state. All sorts of atrocities were happening. And in fact, Muhammad's understanding was an evolution. Mm. It was quite new, the thing that, that he brought in. And, and although we might look at it today and think, well, we need to be, move on from there, for his time it was new. 
And I think if we keep remembering that any theology has been what human beings create from their context, from their understanding, uh, it was Wesley who said we draw on tradition, scripture, reason, which had been what they felt before in terms of theology, but then that he added experience because he said for him it was personal experiences that also um, helped him decide what he would believe and teach. Well, a quote of yours I really loved is that some of our metaphors need to be retired, that we need to find new ways of exploring and understanding God and talking about God. How are some ways other religions speak about God that you've found personally helpful? Well, I think there are a lot. I think what's really important is that the majority of other religions will absolutely stress God as the one within the universe everywhere. I mean, you talk, in Hinduism you find that the Brahman, the idea of the one, is known in its many incarnations. But the one is all pervasive, all seeing, all these wonderful words. You take Islam, Allah, you do not depict Allah. In, in images. You can only depict Allah in geometrical patterns or in something about nature because that represents creation. And so you get this lovely idea too of Allah being closer than our breath. But certainly the idea that, that God is something that is not able to be imaged. In fact, the people were told in no uncertain terms that they were not to image God in, as any human form, any animal form any form in nature. And yet by the medieval times we have the grey-beard God in the heavens and God very much imaged as a person with whom we relate, um, a male, uh, all these, these images that really limit God, totally limit God um, in terms of our understanding of who God is. I think the other issue we have today is that you have people say, well there's no God. And to me I, I, you know, I understand why people are doing that because they're moving away from a lot of images that have been unhelpful. But without expanding knowledge of science, I think that's even an arrogant statement to say that there's no God. We've got a huge universe out there. And so to think that we can say, you know, there is no such thing as a creative energy or however we want to talk about God. The problem is if we have limited God to a description which no longer fits in terms of our knowledge of science and our experience of the universe. And so on, along those lines, what, what's our treasure? What's the gift of Christianity to other religions, to our world? That's a good question. Um, any religion is answering what is the human condition? What's, what's the problem? That's a good theological term, the human condition. What is our situation? What is wrong with it? What would change it and where we'd like to be? But the human condition has not been the same in every religion. In the Chinese religions, it's, look, it's the situation, the problem is disharmony and we're trying to get to harmony or alienation back to harmony. In the traditions of India, Buddhism, Hinduism, it's the idea that what we perceive as real it's not really real, and it's the un—it's it, it, really the unreal, and we have to dig deep into ourselves and find the real. That's liberation. That's salvation in Hinduism, just as the Chinese tradition's salvation is in moving from disharmony 
to harmony. Now, if we say that the whole Christian message is about sin and salvation, and then we want to say to people from the Hindu tradition, you know, you've got it wrong. What you say is the human condition is not really right. It's our human condition that's the right one. It's our solution that's right. Whereas to be listening to these other traditions and thinking, you know, for the 21st century, the idea that we need to move from alienation to harmony and community is a pretty strong message. And the idea that we need to see the things around us perhaps as unreal and try and look deeply for what is really real is also a very strong message. And so if we take the original meaning, the original idea of salvation as being liberation and wholeness, I think Christianity has, has been absorbed with sin, the ideas of sin and evil, early in its peace. Whereas I think Jesus was a lot about abundant life and, and more, and that the emphasis of Jesus was more on how to, how to live well, you know, how to, how to seek justice, how to seek transformation, wholeness. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something we can borrow from some of the other religious traditions. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm still hovering around this idea of what the value of the framework we choose is uh, in um, particularly because you're pointing us towards the beautiful value in all these these other traditions as well, and I'm trying to work out uh, how much you know in choosing one are we choosing against others? You know, in uh, how how do we actually choose one, to stay within the tradition we're birthed in or we find greatest appeal, but continue to maintain an openness, continue to defy exclusivity? in our pursuit of meaning and truth. And this actually links into a listener question that we've had uh, we submitted to us and that uh, with, with so much treasure uh, offered in other traditions, uh, are we able to pick and mix or do we need to commit into one framework? Now, there's a wonderful quote from the Dalai Lama when people, because he's such a wonderful personality, he will have people saying, I want to become Buddhist. Because they want to, because he's Buddhist and they like what he says, and he always says, "Don't leave your own religious tradition. Just practice compassion within your tradition, because that's what he sees as the universal message." And I think that's pretty true that most religions have come out of the idea of love and compassion, and so he doesn't encourage people to become Buddhist because he says your religious tradition is probably ninety percent cultural and social. But the problem with it is when we say that we have the only truth and that our truth is better than your truth. You know, I lived in America for 30 years and I used to get very frustrated when people, America would always say we're number one. Because to be number one means everyone else is number two, three, four, five. And I think any of that idea of saying that my tradition is better for whatever reason means that you are automatically denying the validity of other traditions. And so I think it's more a matter of, of seeing the talking about the search for meaning and how can we best do that in terms of what we ourselves need. Extending that on, I'd like to read a quote that I came across in your most recent book, Testing Tradition and Liberating Theology, which is hot off the press and I highly recommend it. It's, it's a wonderful book. And a quote you had was, Interfaith immersion in the sacred quests of others 
does not mean a religious soup or even interfaith churches, which for me suggests that there won't be a chunky Christian and Hindu noodle soup, which I'm a little bit disappointed by. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested in the way you talk about interfaith dialogue, which you depict as one of the most urgent needs of the now. Can you talk to us about how that conversation happens? How do we dialogue well with other traditions? I'm all for the sort of interfaith dialogue that happens just through our living. If our daily life does not mean that we meet people from other faiths and other ethnic traditions, then we need to reset our GPS. And more and more today, we're moving, we're a global community, we're meeting people. They're our neighbours, they're our doctor, they're our school teacher, people who are Hindu, Muslim, coming into our particular area. And I think that's the biggest thing in terms of interfaith dialogue. When you meet another person and find they aren't the monster that you have portrayed them to be because you didn't know anyone from that situation, that is probably the best way to learn about the other person. It's really hard when you have a religious tradition that says it only has the one truth. Mm. And, and I think that's one of the issues we Christians have to face. You know, there are different ways of approaching other traditions. You can be um, exclusivist, which means that you're right and everyone else is wrong. And the only reason to talk to somebody else is to convert them. And you can talk about the inclusivist, which will say, well, you know, there might be some truth in other religions, but finally, the only truth or only salvation is in Christianity. Or you can look at the, pure, the pluralist attitude, which said there are many paths to the sacred. There are many ways of solving the human condition and the important thing is to be on the path. This is a segment that we've been doing on this podcast. Beryl is a voice that we use that reflects uh, the question that might come from the average church pews. <laughs> I'm Beryl and I'm a Rotarian. I've been going to my church for 70 years. Reading the Old Testament is worse than when I watch Game of Thrones. I don't mind the nudity. That's right. It's time for Beryl's Advocate. Religions are like men. They all seem to think they are the only ones who are right. But the other day, before retiring for the night with my chamomile tea, I was reading the red letters of my King James Bible where Jesus says... I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. How can that be true and there still be room for other religions? Beryl, that's a, a common uh, verse that is quoted from the Bible, and it's helpful for me if I go back and imagine what was going on in that particular um, little scenario, which is only recorded, or in, only spoken of, in the Gospel of John. Uh, there are a group of people that are portrayed as being frightened, as um, if you remember the context, um, they ask uh, if Jesus is going away, how are we going to know the way? How are we going to know how to follow you? And, uh, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Now it doesn't, it has been universalized, that particular verse has been universalized over the centuries. And when you, you sort of see it as being God speaking, through Jesus to say, I am the, this is the only way. The word doesn't say the only way. 
Perhaps it would be helpful if we said, Jesus said, I am the way for you. I'm the truth. I'm the life. It's, to me, it's a very local comment. It's a local comment that has been recorded um, in the Gospels, and as I say, only in one of the Gospels, so that begs the question as to why it wasn't something that was recorded in every Gospel, if it was going to be some significant statement to the end of time. I, I think we've got to understand, too, that in the time of Jesus, only a couple of centuries before Jesus, the Jewish people did not have an afterlife. They didn't believe in an afterlife. That was a very uh, late development in the, in the Hebrew Bible. We get a bit of it about in Daniel, which is only a, you know, a couple of centuries before Jesus. And so when you get to Jesus, you have people, different groups of Jewish people arguing about the afterlife, whether there was anything beyond. And so I think you know, that you've got to bring that issue in. We've made it that it's all about, Jesus is all about um, salvation and going to heaven. And I think by stressing that as the only issue of Jesus and turning everything retrospectively, reading the Gospels back into the development of, that, of those understandings, I think we lose a lot of the urgency of Jesus talking about what is actually going to happen to these people in this place. It's Jesus that tells us the nonviolent way of God as opposed to the violent way of the Romans of Caesar. Well, if you were here in front of us, I would high-five you at this point. I think that's an awesome response. Lucas has just slapped the screen, so we're going to yeah. have some technical difficulties here. <laughs> it's such a wonderful encouragement to to picture what it might be like as a faith tradition where we to take seriously the way of rather than the way to. Um, now that's, her that's heresy. I've already and called the heresy police. <laughs> they're, they're on the way to your apartment right now. We're just stalling you. <laughs> String her out. I, I do kamikaze theology yeah. because nobody, <laughs> nobody can sack me because <laughs> I'm not important. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is the radical sort of thinking we have to start raising, um, and it's difficult in the church because the churches, churches are about, you know, holding particular teaching, teaching together. I really loved something in your book that I read, your most recent one, where you talked about tradition. When we think about tradition, we think about encasing it. We think of the imagery of putting it in a box and storing it for all time and protecting and preserving. But you talked about traditions should be the boxes that we hold traditions in should be bent and busted and broken and have torn corners. We should roll them around and play with them and we shouldn't enshrine them. I wonder if that's perhaps partly what you're saying is to be of the tradition means to evolve the tradition. It doesn't mean to lock something in a past. Yeah, and, and it does happen. We, you know, we, Tradition has changed along the way, but it seems to be selectively changing. You know, there are some things that we allow to be questioned, but there are other things that are sort of sacred ground. You don't talk about that, and we will. And in that situation, we perpetuate these metaphors that might have little meaning for the 21st century. Now, the first book I did was in defence of doubt, an invitation to adventure, and that came out of my own experience because I had struggled all my life with questions that was ne were not allowed to be asked. And you know, you kept putting all the icing on the cake, even though the cake might feel as if it was a bit stale. And I think coming finally, even though I sort of squashed my doubts right through 
graduate degrees in science and research, sort of trying to separate the two so that I could keep the doctrines intact until finally I got into my 40s and said, look, I've got, you know, either I can't live this schizophrenic life any longer. I've either got to walk away from the church or get some answers. And that's when I went back to university to do theology, purely for my own um, need to ask the questions. And, you know, it was then that I realized that all these questions had, that I had had been asked through the centuries of theology before me, but they hadn't got down to the pew because you can control people. The church can keep people in, you know, keep their boxes intact if they are not allowed to ask questions, if doubt is cast as a negative or some problem. And I think that's what the church has done. In science, doubt is the, the best thing you can possibly have because that's what moves the status quo forward. But, but for the church, doubt was the, the bad thing the evil thing, and that's, you know, that's, and that's where the book came about because I suddenly thought, gosh, if we looked at doubt as being the catalyst to lead to new experiences like we do in every other part of our lives, you know, what would that mean in terms of changing the church? What would it be if we encouraged people to say about things that worried them? What if the opposite was true? Because that's how you get people thinking, thinking for themselves. So, you know, I just think we need to, if we're going to have some authentic Christianity today, I think we've really got to start encouraging people to doubt and to move forward and to ask their questions in a very healthy way, not in a negative way, in a healthy way. And we've got to have clergy that have the courage to encourage their congregations to do that. It's my turn to high-five you now, Val. <laughs> we, we joked before about... Uh, the, the heretic police and, and, and speaking heresies, but surely the only true heresy is to say that you are certain about anything about God. I mean, Good. if God is beyond all understanding, then there has to be that element of mystery, and, and, and yeah. surely the only, surely the, our response has to be one of doubt and mystery and wonder and awe and, and heresy. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks for your time, Val, and your honesty. Oh. I feel that your journey, particularly coming to find permission to ask the questions, will be of great value to some of our listeners. So thanks oh. for your honesty, and uh, we'll visit you in prison when the heretic police arrive. <laughs> You'll come and bring me some cake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the file with the inside. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it's, I've enjoyed It's lovely to meet you too, and I hope when I'm in Melbourne next we'll come across each other. Love, love. Love only love. 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 Love only love. Dave Andrews is love. a dude. He's just flat out awesome. Love. He's a long haired, beardy bloke who has this aura about him like some kind of guru. It was a pretty good description, really, of how he comes across. He's part of an amazing creative community collective, I guess you'd call them, in Brisbane called the Waiters Union, whose purpose is to serve their community. I actually met Dave a few months ago at a Love Makes Away action, which Jared McKenna spoke to us about in our last episode. It was in Parliament House during Refugee Week in June, and the action involved singing a song and then sitting in a large circle and praying in silence. There were about 40 of us involved, and while we were sitting in the lobby of Parliament House, we were praying in public, so conscious of being silent and solemn and earnest, Dave stands up from the circle and leaves the group and starts 
chatting away to some spectators who are watching us, who turned out to be a group of Hazara refugees. Within about 10 seconds of him engaging with them, the whole group was gathered around him, hanging off every word and laughing. After about 10 minutes in the Parliament House lobby, our group was escorted outside and continued the action out there. And again, Dave gets up from the group and goes and walks over to a a group of Indian students or tourists and started speaking to them in Hindi. You could see the shock on their faces when he started speaking to them in their own tongue. Now, it struck me in the group of 40-odd ministers and priests and pastors and Christian activists, he was the guy who noticed what was happening on our margins and went to be there. He was the guy who went outside of our circle to connect with the very diversity of people who we were there for. I was already in awe of this guy. He's written books, he's been a headline speaker at conferences, and someone like Jared McKenna, who we spoke to last week, he just walks the walk. Dave Andrews, welcome to Beyondering. So how about we start with a question we've kicked off with with a few of our guests. Is just a question around what keeps you within the Christian story? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I often tell people the longer I live, the less I believe, but the little I believe in, I believe in more and more. So there's a whole lot of stuff around Christian theology that I used to be really interested in that uh, doesn't interest me at all. Um, but who God is revealed to be in Jesus, I find as enchanting as ever. So it's uh, who Jesus is, how Jesus engages the world, um, the way Jesus uh, challenges people like me to engage the world, I find um, exhilarating, as exhilarating today as uh, it has ever been in my life. You've recently released a book called The Jihad of Jesus, which is is fair to say is quite a provocative title. Tell us about the title itself and then just the book. What, what What's it about? So since 9-11, um, I found that my Muslim friends uh, and I were defined over against each other. So the in the politics of identity that followed... Um, the terror and the counter-terror, uh, we found ourselves um, divided by a chasm of uh, division and suspicion. And the question was, how could we come together and rebuild the bridges? Um, uh, one of the ways that we have come together is through seeing Jesus not as a poster boy for Christians camp crusading against Muslims, but by seeing Jesus as the supreme example the Messiah or the Messiah, uh, that's acceptable as such to both Christians and Muslims. So it's we've been fascinated with the, the, the person of Jesus, um, both as Christians and Muslims. And uh, we've been fascinating with the Beatitudes of Jesus as a framework for engaging a world of poverty and violence. And as we've reflected on, on jihad, um, uh, we've, um, we've recognised how that's become a frightful word, um, it's become a byword for terror. And um, 
my Muslim friends have said to me, you know, for jihad, for us, jihad is 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 not about war, still less about holy war. It's about a struggle for justice. And and as we've gone back and read some of the text in the jihad in the Quran about jihad, we've had conversations about maybe reclaiming jihad from the extremists and reframing it as a an understanding of uh, a non-violent struggle for justice. And as we've talked about that, we've made the connection between jihad and Jesus and said, wow, you know, maybe G Jesus is the, the ultimate example of, um, of jihad uh, as a non-violent struggle for justice. And so out of those conversations, this book has emerged where we've um, decided to write in a way that invites a whole range of other people to be a part of this conversation to see whether in fact Christians and Muslims can consider Jesus as a supreme example of uh, a non-violent struggle for justice and, and come together as Christians and Muslims to, to um, struggle non-violently side by side um, to try and work for change in our world. You began, you began that response by saying, after 9-11, my Muslim friends and I, it, it strikes me that there's even portions within, within Christianity, within our churches, who, who couldn't begin a response like that because we stick to our own, right? That's, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. <laughs> how, do we, how do we move past that? So first of all, um, uh, I got married when I was 20 and my wife and I, um, at the age of 21, read the Gospels uh, and we hadn't been to Bible college, so we didn't know you could interpret what we read to be other than what it said. <laughs> and when Jesus said to, the, to rich young people like us, sell everything, give, have, give it to the poor, we actually took that seriously. So we sold our house and gave everything away. And Sucker. We went to Bible college, so we <laughs> got to interpret it differently. So Aren't you lucky? <laughs> um, so we sold everything and we went to Afghanistan and that's where we first encountered Muslim people as really um, respectful, helpful people. Um, and then uh, when we uh, had to flee Afghanistan because of a war that broke out, went down through the Khyber Pass, through Pakistan on top of a bus, and then found ourselves in India. We started an intentional community in, um, in Delhi, um, which was a, a community that was open to people of all different religions, to Hindus and Buddhists and Jains and Sikhs and Jews and Christians and, and Muslims. And so we lived together again in a context uh, where we relate to Muslims as, as uh, um, friends. Um, and then in 84, when we came back to Australia, we helped resettle um, um, a whole lot of people from Afghanistan, particularly Hazaras, uh, helped them resettle in this country. And they became um, not just friends, but very good friends, very close, very dear friends. Um, so when I say 9-11 erupted and then challenged those relationships and redefined them differently, it was in the context of, you know, decades of engagement with Muslim uh, people as friends uh, that was now then threatened by the propaganda wars. Now, what made us open to those people? Well, I think the challenge was that um, uh, for us is that as followers of Jesus, we believed that Jesus hadn't come to bring a new religion, uh, still less a religion that he thought he'd name after himself like Christianity, for example. And he certainly didn't uh, develop that as a construction that was a imperial religion in competition with other religions. 
Jesus, when he explains himself, says, I have come to bring life. And we believe that Jesus has come to bring life to all people in the context of every culture, tradition and religion. And so as followers of Jesus, we believe we are called to engage people of every culture, tradition and religion and with them try to discover what the good news is uh, for them. Um, when I first met uh, Nora Amat, who's uh, my Muslim colleague, she had already been involved in interfaith dialogue for seven years and was sick and tired of um, being attacked by Christians who'd uh, conduct full-on frontal assaults on her and her religion and then um, and then try to convert her. <clears throat> I can remember going to one place uh, to, with her to talk about how Christians and Muslims could live in peace and when we arrived there, there was a big crowd outside waving banners, resist Islam, and then they poured into the church. And then we tried to talk about how we tried to live in peace, but they yelled and screamed and wagged their fingers and grimaced and and um, asked questions that, you know, were more statements. They didn't want to listen to the answers because they already knew the answers already. And, and they just um, got stuck into Nora um, and... Um, attacked her um, <clears throat> in the most disgraceful manner. But at the end of it, as per usual, they gave her a Bible and asked her whether she become wanted to become a Christian, as if anything they'd said or done would ever <laughs> make her to want to become a Christian. So she got sick and tired of that kind of treatment, and then somebody said, you should talk to Dave. And she said, well, who's Dave? And they said, well, he's really a devout Christian. She said, oh, no, I can't bear it. I can't meet another Christian. And I said, no, but he's different. And we met. And we met in the coffee club in West End in Brisbane. We sat down to talk. And um, it wasn't long before she realised that I do not believe that we are called to convert anybody. Conversion is a work of God. It's a work of the spirit. When we assume that role, try to play God, we do a lot of damage. Um, my role there as a follower of Jesus was to affirm whatever was life-giving um, for her uh, within her tradition and religion. And so uh, I can remember going to a Pentecostal church a little while ago, and uh, they uh, the first question they asked her was, uh, so Nora, what do you like about working with Dave? And she said that he doesn't want me to become a christian he just wants me to be a better muslim and that's the truth i believe that christ has not come to start a religion in competition with other religions um, but come to bring life and he will bring life in a way that uh, confirms all that is life affirming in a religion and confronts all that is life negating in a religion and um so it's not about converting Christians into Muslims or Muslims into Christians. It's about each just being open to the, the vitality and the sensitivity and the responsibility of that spirit of life that uh, God sheds abroad. Why is that hard to grasp for us? Why is it hard to see a God that in, is in all, that a God that wants to just work towards life and anything that's life-giving? What, what stops us from embracing that? Because we want to believe that we've got a monopoly on God, 
that our tradition has a franchise on the truth and that other people have to come to us in order to access that truth because it's a means of um, generating a significant income if everybody has to come to us to get the truth. Um, but Jesus was prepared to challenge this on day one. This is what I find absolutely staggering. Day one of Jesus' ministry, he goes to the local synagogue, opens the, the, the scroll and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to set liberty those of the captive. And this has now become true in your hearing. So I imagined that everybody was really happy about that. You know, great. The spiritual renewal movement's happening in our synagogue. Everybody's going to come. We'll be, set, be able to set up small businesses, you know, you know, sell them tea and cookies. We'll be able to generate a lot of income. You know, we'll become really famous. We'll become the center of the, the Jewish world. Do you know what I mean? Because Jesus is with us. The Spirit is upon him. It's happening in our synagogue. And Jesus is our boy. But Jesus seemed to read their hearts. And in the same chapter that most people don't read, he goes, Jesus says, yes, the Spirit is upon us, but not only on us. There's been many times in Israel's history where there's been people with leprosy that have not been healed. But God, by Spirit, has reached out to people that weren't Jews, that were Syrians, idolaters even, like Naaman. And God healed them when he wasn't healing us. Now, that confronted people with their, um, their desire to have a monopoly on God so dramatically that they were enraged with Jesus. And what does it say that they wanted to do then? Not clap and cheer. They wanted to throw him off a cliff because they'll always want to throw you off a cliff when you say that God is bigger than my religion, that God works among us but also with them, that other people can be healed, other people can become whole uh, through the work of the Spirit um, in other traditions and cultures and religions. I mean, uh, that's what makes people mad. That's what people have excommunicated me for. I mean, when I've said things like that because people want to think, you know, God's on our side, when the question is, are we on God's side? And if we are, are we prepared to go where God goes and relate to who God relates to? That's the real question. You mentioned excommunicated. Can you tell us about that? How, has, how have you been treated by virtue of putting out this message and pursuing this message with your life? What has been some of the, the more negative responses of it? Oh, I've been excommunicated many times or blacklisted or booted out of Christian organisations. Um, and often it's because of the notion of the inclusivity of God. Um, uh, and uh, that's really challenging. I mean, even now with the Jihad of Jesus coming out, I have Christians track me to meetings and stand up and publicly denounce me as a heretic, um, as a traitor um, to the faith, um, because I I'm saying that, Muslims can have a relationship with God like we do and that and that uh, they can experience the grace of God in their lives as well, uh, that we don't have a franchise on forgiveness, that uh, they too can understand forgiveness and forgive and be forgiven. Um, and uh, so even within my own church context, I have to accept that people want to exclude me. I mean... The assistant pastor in the church that I was a part of uh, complained to me about me to a Christian organisation and had me banned for ten years, and that's the assistant pastor in the, my own church that I'm a part of, you know. So, uh, you know, 
that's the reality. Now, the cha but the challenge is the challenge is how do we deal with that? Um, because so many people get bitter and twisted, and for me, the challenge is the the essential spiritual challenge in all this is how do we absorb the hostility and act with integrity and grace? How do we uh, transcend? The desire to retaliate and actually not return evil for evil but return good for evil which is the the whole redemptive gospel dynamic and i think so at the heart of this engagement with other people of other cultures and traditions and religions is dealing with the rejection of our own people and finding a way to process that in a way that's creative and constructive um living with that um and working with that in a way that's that's really genuinely redemptive. Which strikes me as a massive task when your own brothers and sisters within your tradition or fellow Christians that would come to your book launch would voice things against you. What So what does it look like to treat them with grace and humility, to absorb that hostility and respond with good as opposed to evil? How do you do it? I think it's uh, an incredible challenge for us to do that because I don't think it's any progress moving from a fundamentalist conservative to a, becoming a fundamentalist liberal. You can still have a closed mind and a hard heart. Uh, you've just changed your theological categories. I think the issue is about whether we're going to be really open to God, uh, respectful of people, willing to hold the the contradictions, uh, the tensions between contradicting views that may, may be both equally valid. And are we willing to take on that excruciating role of holding those tensions together in us without trying to resolve them in a way that will make us feel good but won't do good to others? I'm Faith. And I'm Five. Any pigs like peace? made of love. My friend Khalil goes to church. He calls it mosque. But he doesn't celebrate Christmas or Easter. But we both pray. Are we praying to the same God? I think there is only one God. And I think when we pray, that one God hears our prayers, regardless of what name we call God. And what name we call the house of God that we go to. You've journeyed very closely with other faiths, particularly Islam. What have you learned from that as a faith and from the other religious traditions you've rubbed shoulders with? And how are you different because of your relationship, your friendship and your dialogue? Uh, originally, when I uh, first went to India, I thought I was going to change the world. And I thought changing the world meant changing all those other people. Um, so they would accept my truth as the truth, you know. Um, however, I believe God used this engagement to, to change me. Um, I believe that, um, that there's something to learn from all the Abrahamic traditions with their acknowledgement of God, the one God. Um, 
and that's something I think that's really important. Um, a, a God who's committed to justice um, is a common view of God for Christians, Muslims and Jews. Um, I think um, that there is a specific contribution from um, other religions that are um, Asian religions rather than Middle Eastern religions. Um, I, for example, I think um, Advait Vedanta Hinduism actually gives us a sense of the oneness of all things, not just the oneness of God. I think Advait Vedanta Hinduism gives us a sense of um, uh, the call for us to uh, relate to God in terms of um, like devotion and bhakti. Um, I think um, Buddhism itself, um, that probably, as the Dalai Lama says, is probably more a psychology than a religion, um, gives us a discipline of mindfulness that I think is actually a, a, um, a practice that can enhance all religious uh, disciplines. Um, I think Jainism uh, brings us the concept of ahimsa or non-harming, and it was through the lens of ahimsa or non-harming that Gandhi uh, discovered the, the, the non-violence of Jesus. And, of course, the interesting thing there, of course, is that Gandhi um, read the Sermon on the Mount every day and helped restore the non-violent Jesus to Christianity uh, because he saw something of Jesus through the Jain concept of ahimsa. So there we come full circle that, that our engagement with other people of other religions can teach us things, even restore an understanding of who Jesus is to us in a way that we were blinded to because of our Christian theology. Thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, and for putting yourself out there in the ways that you have over the years to walk the, the path of truth, of nonviolent justice. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming beyondering with us. This thing called God is not a thing at all. Not a theoretical problem to be solved, but a mystery to dance within. So would you take my hands within yours and we'll dance to the rhythm of her beat. My feet may stumble as we do. As I, enclosed in the captivity of the senses, peep through the curtain, yet stumble back into the darkness in fear that I would be consumed by you. God, rid me of God. God, rid me of God. I'll never seek to define you again. I'll not speak of you again in words that are not metaphor. In words that are not these poetics where similes drip from my tongue to speak of that which cannot be spoken. God, rid me of God until I find you in the silence of my breath. If you'd like to know more about Dave Andrews or Val Webb, perhaps try the web. Jump on our website. There you'll find all sorts of stuff, including the voices that they would point us towards as further influences and beyonders. Next week, we explore scripture and sacred texts beyond, behind and between the words. 
We're joined by Meryl Blair. I found that it was an amazingly helpful thing to be studying theology while nursing because it taught me some things like pain is inevitable <laughs> and one of the things that was really, really um, important to me was studying the Psalms and, and particularly the Lament Psalms, that sense that if there is enough space for lament to happen and to be honoured, there will slowly be a move through to something else. And the simply getting things out into language is actually the first step of healing. And Walter Brueggemann. The, the text goes, God goes on to say, they, they want meat. And, and God says, uh, uh, well, I'll give you quail. He says, in fact, I will give you so much quail that I will stuff it up your nose. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that's a text. And that's exactly the wording of the text. Well, we never read that in church because somebody might get upset about that. <laughs> As we explore the Old Testament. But don't worry, it's going to be okay. So tune in next week. Thank you for coming Beyondering. Fantastic. Beyondering is supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria. Join the network, find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams, an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane, September 16th to 19th, 2016. Edited by Shaz Mullins and... Produced by Adam Eyes on the Ball.